think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 49 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 50th episode. I'm Laura Carboneau. I need no introduction. <laughs> That's Etienne Renville. Um, we've we've made it to 50 episodes, and not a minute too soon, because uh, Etienne is leaving for the next month this week. That's correct. That is factually accurate. Well, you know, that's what what we strive for here. Um, It's been a really busy week. Um, It's it's actually been insanely busy. Yeah, like a lot Um, has happened. Um, And like very big stuff too, so. We've nationalized a a pipeline. We're all the proud new owners. We've nationalized uh, a pipeline. Kathleen Wynne has resigned. Well. (laughs) Basically. Yeah. Um, We're in a trade war. Trump is back on with North Korea. Yeah, that on again, um, that classic on again. Will they? Won't they? Like take, the Jim and Pam of international relations. Take your pick. This is uh, a whole new world than the last time we recorded a podcast. Also, the Auditor General reported, and actually, that's pretty much the outline of our discussion today, though not necessarily in that order. Um, though we will start with the pipeline. Uh, that's really probably the most significant political decision made by the government this week. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I think it's actually pretty hard to overstate how significant of a decision this was. I think it will perhaps be the defining moment in Trudeau's first yeah. tenure. Um, mandate. Not, not menure. Uh, not menure. Uh, yeah, mandate, tenure, whatever you want to call it. Menure is good, too. I think it is really hard to overstate how significant of a decision it was. Yeah. Not only for the amount of money putting up. Um, the fact that they're really, really spending political capital now. Yes. And the fact that it sets up the federal government as the opponent to all the protesters in BC. Yes. And and elsewhere. Um, like the people who are opposed to the pipeline project who are not just in BC. Sure. But for me, it's really about who is calling the cops on the protesters yeah. now. Yeah. And it is, it is the federal government. Yes. It, it's certainly harder... When you're a pipeline company and the, the cops are coming to arrest people protesting the pipeline, when the you know the 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 CEO of the company, so to speak, is is Justin Trudeau, that really adds a, another level of political controversy to the use of force on protesters and, and civil disobedience in general. So that will be um, something to watch. And I think actually that's for me personally to just to jump right in. I think that's at the core of this politically is. And, and not to, to, you know, discount the actual ecological and economic impacts of this. I think those are seriously and worth talking about. But just from a political point of view, I think this is a real simple equation balancing here of how many hours of primetime television can there be of protesters, uh, indigenous or non-indigenous, getting dragged away by cops uh, in British Columbia over a pipeline. Can Justin Trudeau endure and still win seats in greater Vancouver and other areas that are against the pipeline in a pretty vociferous way. I think that's a real, like, a fine line, and uh, I guess we will find out where that line is, unfortunately. Um, But I think that's really, like, just from a nakedly political perspective, that's kind of what the equation is going to be. I I fully agree with that. But let's let's back up here and talk about the announcement itself and some of the uh details of the announcement um what day was it tuesday monday tuesday tuesday uh morneau convened a early press conference uh, ostensibly just out of cabinet um to say 
We're buying it. Um, purchase price of $4.5 billion. Yeah. Uh, make of that what you will. Yeah. Some people are saying it's a little too much, but, you know. And keep keep in mind that this is buying the already existing infrastructure does not take into account the cost of doing the twinning that was originally planned. Yes. So the $4.5 billion is for the terminals and the pipe that's already in the ground. Yes, which is 60 um, years old at this point. The deal is set to close in August, uh, pending ratification by Kinder Morgan shareholders. Um, in the interim... There's evidently an agreement between the federal government and Kinder Morgan to basically get work started. Um, the federal government is backstopping it. They're going to be taking on some of Kinder Morgan's pipe management team and construction team. Um, there will be the formation of a new Crown Corporation to manage the project. Um, Petrocan 2.0, if you will. <laughs> um, or, I actually had missed that part. Or, or Pipe Can. Um, so there, there's a lot of questions. Um, Alberta's also in here where they have a, a reserve fund of several billion dollars to backstop the project and some sort of equity stake in it, I think. Um, I didn't get to attend the technical briefing. I, I suspect that they covered it there, but it wasn't uh, widely reported on afterwards. Um, so the purchase price is not reflective of all the other costs that are going to have to go into construction of the pipeline. Yeah, which is, I think, people have estimated between 7 and $10 billion in that neighborhood. Yeah, so something along those lines. Um, and then the other thing to note from the announcement is that... Um, so the messaging seems a little hazy. The journalist who went into the technical briefing um, talked about how the departmental officials... Their message was that as of today, they're looking to sell the pipeline, basically, that they're seeking investors immediately. Yeah. Um, whereas the federal government's, met, or not the federal, but Morneau's messaging wasn't that. It was, we're looking to get work started immediately. Yeah. And we're sure someone will invest in the project eventually. Yeah. I mean, that's not that different. I think it's basically, he's taking the view that they need to demonstrate construction process for there to be an interested buyer. Which is sure, but it, like, there was a lot of mixed signals. Um, and I think it's interesting that the that the departmental officials were pushing purchase the pipeline basically immediately because this, of course, is sort of the problem with the whole thing is the whole purpose of the purchase was to mitigate the political risk um, arising from the back and forth between basically Alberta and BC, largely yeah. largely BC's obstruction of the process. The federal government said, if we are the owners of the pipe, it makes the legal process much clearer. There's no question that this is a federal project as opposed to a project sort of sanctioned federally through yeah. the NEB. The pipeline can go forward. Um the NDP Horgan's government in BC have been a little more equivocal. They said, well, our reference question is not really about the same thing. So there's, there's some mixed signals going back and forth. Um, but ultimately what it comes down to is why would anyone purchase it now with the political risk still hanging over the project? Yeah. Which I think was Morneau's point, right? If, if they can demonstrate that the pipeline is actually getting built then it becomes a lot more attractive to prospective buyers. Sure. Yeah, because right um, now what you're buying is an enormous liability. Yeah. Which, so, frankly, is what the Canadian 
you know, public has purchased. It's well, an enormous political liability. Well, there po- we go. political liability, but it's, it is a tangible asset. Yes. Um, there have been various uh, investors and analysts who have remarked that, you know, if they can get it built reasonably, it should be, you know, pipelines have a certain amount of liability from running them, but generally they're run like toll roads, yeah. steady source of income, reliable. It's pretty clear to crunch the numbers on. They're not that risky of an asset to hold. No. Well, um, yeah, it's just in the, in this case, it's like, is this twinning going to happen? And then like... Yeah. So, I mean, you, you get the construction started and well underway, and then it becomes a much more uh, appealing asset. Yeah, because if the twinning doesn't happen, I think they'd probably have to sell it at a loss. I think that that's pretty likely. To I, mean, I mean, it just has to happen. Well, I mean, we'll see. I personally don't think it will. Either in, this is my next question for you, but like, I don't think it will actually get built. I mean, Trudeau told me it'd get built. Yeah, he did say that, but like, I, I legitimately think he's not like they have a lot of seats in Vancouver. They have a lot of seats in in sort of coastal British Columbia. They have a lot of seats in Montreal. They have a lot of seats in Toronto. These are all places where people are not particularly interested in watching RCMP, you know, officers haul off Indigenous protesters uh, from their traditional territories to you know, like it's just there's. I don't think his government can really do that and continue to hold those areas, which they need. Like, would they, could they still win an election? Yeah, I think that they could, but I think they would have a real headwind uh, from that kind of thing. And I, I just don't think there's an appetite when push comes to shove to see the use of force at a really large scale used against protesters in this country among people who tend to support the liberal party if it were stephen harper's government i don't think stephen harper would give a shit if the bleeding hearts in toronto were you know tired of seeing people get hauled off on the nightly news but justin trudeau has to care because those are the people who vote for him so i i think partly what was telling at the press conference there were several journalists who asked him basically about who asked more about this point it was more more and car but more was taking the bulk of the questions um and he basically said you know pipelines have been built before facing opposition yeah we will be able to build it and then he talked about the only risk that they were really concerned about was the political risk from bc the bc government yeah he really hand waved over the question of protests and uh, protesters yeah. so i i think i, mean, I think it's really wise interesting for, to watch i think it's wise for them to do that from the point of view of investor confidence and sort of reassuring bay street that they're willing to crack the whip i just don't think they will be really willing to in the final analysis or if they do it will be very politically costly for them okay let's leave it there um I, i'm not sure there's too too much more to say yeah i mean um, i I, th- I think it's it's interesting how the other parties have reacted federally it certainly got uh I mean, the news and the controversy, although widely carried, um, it was somewhat short because of all of the other events of this week. Yes. Um, So where I think media coverage would still be ongoing, it sort of got severed by Trump and the trade war. Yeah. So uh, there will be an upcoming by-election in Burnaby South uh, once Kennedy Stewart affects his resignation to run for mayor of Vancouver. That's correct. It seems to me that there's a non-zero chance that Jagmeet Singh might run for that. Um, he has sort of hinted yeah. slash left the question open. Yeah. I, I honestly don't know, but like um, it seems to me that if that were to happen, that would be a real flashpoint for the pipeline. It is. It is the most winnable riding. I think it's one one of the dynamics. I think that's fun about this whole thing. Um, is the dynamic between Notley, yes, Horgan, and Singh. Yeah, where. Notley's uh, really having to hammer her own party, and this is yeah. sort well, of I mean, the hilarious dynamic of the NDP. Yeah, is that they're all technically the same party, 
and there's supposed to be no light between them on on these positions. I think any, anyone who understands the NDP knows that there's always been daylight between NDPs. I, I don't provincially under, I, and federally. I don't on these understand issues. the NDP, so <laughs> I, I'm very that is fair. Very unclear on no, this. but I mean, like it, from you know. From Notley's point of view, all the seats she has to win are in Alberta. From Horgan's sure, point of view, sure. all the seats he has to win are in BC. And from Jagmeet Singh's point of view, all the seats he has to win are in BC. So, you know, with the exception of Linda Duncan at Edmonton, who, which, you know, I think Linda can probably do just fine as is. Damn you, leftist University of Alberta students. Yeah, um, it's just like, it's a total no-brainer in terms of the, like, federal political calculus for him of where the winnable seats are. For sure. For sure. I, uh, ah. Okay, let's wait. Let's leave it there. Okay, do you want to talk about the Conservative Party's reaction? I I actually haven't. I've been. They've been very mad, but I'm not entirely clear what about. Okay, so let me let me try and articulate the strongest argument that the Conservatives have presented. The issue from the Conservative perspective, and sort of the issue broadly in Ottawa, is whether or not international investment is going to find a happy home in Ottawa. Yes. Right. And so the question is, does this move by the federal government reassure foreign investors or make them pack up and leave? Yeah. So you have uh, Kinder Morgan, which is a Texas-based oil company, as, as the NDP are fond of reminding you. As we are. Um, who was unable, you know, they, they sank millions upon millions into trying to get this pipeline and approvals and going through the domestic process. To have domestic political tensions basically block it, and then the federal government having to step in and actually purchase the project from them. Yeah. That is a pretty exceptional circumstance, and I don't mm. think it will continue to happen that many more times in the future. So it makes other people, other investors, look at projects like Muskrat Falls, Site C, yeah. Trans Mountain, Energy East, LNG off of the coast of BC... And say, like, our record right now is absolutely, like, appalling yeah. in terms of major projects. Um, and, you know, pipelines being at the top of political controversy, but hydroelectric dams have become yeah. hugely controversial. What what should be, you know, viewed as well, green energy. Muskrat, well, it's the, that's the thing, right? It's like, I don't want to get a, on a huge, huge digression about dams. I agree that the, from a carbon perspective, very clean. There's a lot of habitat destruction. There's a lot of work you have to do to like clear the land and like empty the, the reservoirs and stuff. That is that is quite intensive and sure. destructive environmentally. Yeah. And and you know when you're talking about indigenous land rights, that is a thing that the Newfoundland government, in the case of Muskrat Falls, really didn't do adequately. Especially when you compare it to like the James Bay development in the Quebec side, like that was done in the 60s and 70s. Total different story. And you can do it well. And I think hydro is going to be an important part of Canada's mix for the forever because we just have so much of it. But the Muskrat Falls case is a case of everything being done wrong from Nelcor from day one, basically. So that's fine. You, you can take issue. My, my point is not to pick apart the individual projects. It's to say when you start adding up the major projects in sure. Canada, we have a bad track record. Um, there's, of course, the other pipelines, Energy East being foremost among them. And that, yeah. that sort of takes me back to the conservative position on it. The best articulated conservative position I've seen is that the Trudeau cabinet closed down basically two other pipeline options um, and put all their eggs in this one basket. Which is a little ironic considering 
what liberals in the NDP were saying about the conservatives back <laughs> in the day about putting all his eggs in oil and um, at, at least our oil plan yes. was diversified. Yes. Theirs is singular. Yes, and what Trudeau has been saying back is that um, you know not a single mile of pipeline got built on a kilometer got built under Stephen Harper, which to is not true. Asterisks to Tidewater now. Yes. Um, so I, I mean, take it as you will. I think the liberals have outmaneuvered themselves. They put themselves in a corner. Um, by leaving only one pipeline on the table, which makes it one thing to oppose. Yeah. And I think from the point of view of the liberals, I think they are probably correct that this is a reassuring move for investors. Uh, I don't think they would have done it if it wasn't. People like Morneau are very plugged into the realities of Bay Street and international investment. Uh, Christian Freeland is very plugged into this reality. Jim Carr is very plugged into this reality. I don't think they would have done this if they thought it was... Because, I mean, I think on balance, this is a political loser for them, given where their vote and their base is. Um, I think it, for them, it, it has to be something that makes sense on the economic merits or they wouldn't do it. Um, so that that's my take on the conservative position. I totally get where they're coming from, and I think it's it's in their interest of portraying the liberals as unable to to handle the international business climate and managing investor confidence but I don't think they're correct in this case. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little more hesitant to make that proclamation. I think the fact that the private sector cannot be the private sector without, you know, navigating these interventions, having the ultimatum, having the country polarized against you, does not make for a hospitable no, environment. I, I don't think it's like, I, I think this is them making what they can out of a situation that has gone sour for them. Like, I, I think that's absolutely true, but I think in this case, this was a move very much aimed at saying, look, Canada can get these things done. Just watch us, if you will. Okay, wait, we have to leave this pipeline. Yeah, behind. we do have to leave the pipeline. Uh, we have got other things, but I'm sure we will be able to talk about the pipeline again in the future. There will be <laughs> no shortage of it over the summer, I'm sure. Indeed. This brings us to the trade war. Trade war. Woo. So we are now at trade war. We are at trade war. Uh, or in... Well, technically... I watered and weeded a Tien's Victory Garden today. True story. <laughs> technically, I think it is perhaps a tiny bit premature to say we're in a trade war. Um, well, trade war commences July 1st. Yes. So buy your gherkins and bourbon before that. So let, let's talk about the government's move here. So with the... Um, U.S. exemption for Canada on Canada, Mexico, and many others on aluminum and steel tariffs expiring on June first, i.e., yesterday. Yesterday, everyone was sort of looking to the United States to see whether or not they would renew the tariffs, or sorry, renew the exemption for the tariffs. Um, they didn't. Uh, I think to the shock of many people, many people sort of thought that they would. You know, either go with a quota or renew the exemption, make some sort of middle ground moves as NAFTA continues to be negotiated as a bunch of other things come together. Yeah. Um, they threw all that out the window, imposed 25% on steel, 10% on aluminum. Um, the federal government, Trudeau, Freeland, were more than prepared to respond uh, within the day. Freeland was basically flying back from Washington, D.C., had a press conference in Ottawa where they released the retaliatory list, and Trudeau sort of stood firm in denouncing the move by Washington. So it was mentioned that the uh, Canadian list is the dollar equivalent of 
what the U.S. wanted. So I imagine they basically had this list prepared ahead of time, and we're like, what can we sort of squeeze in here to... Uh... Well, they've been basically preparing it for months. No, I know, but it's just interesting, like, I can't... I, I'm just imagining, like, what the conversations are like. I'm like, okay, so I think maple syrup gets us over the cap, so do we have something we can sub in for that? Like, so Maple syrup is on there, actually, so... Ma- maple syrup is on there. I'm actually trying to pull up the press release now that sort of lays it all out. Um, but what's interesting... Okay, let, let's get a few things clear here, because a lot of people misunderstood this. When we apply tariffs and countermeasures on these products, it hurts Canadian consumers. So here's, here's what happens from the market perspective. Laurent, you are a blank salesman. What are you, what are you selling? Gherkins. You're a gherkin salesman. Okay. The government, gherkin is in table two of finances release. So gherkins will have a 10% tariff slapped on them come July 1st. Yes barring their removal through the 15-day consultation process. Um, Your gherkins that you're purchasing from the United States become 10% more expensive. What do you do? Raise prices. Raise prices or? Nobly sacrifice my profits to ensure the ongoing access to gherkins of uh, the common man. Or you look elsewhere. You source your gherkins somewhere else. Like locally, for instance thus stimulating the uh, Canadian gherkin manufacturers. <laughs> well, so that... Gherkin that... manufacturers, my check uh, should be in the mail. <laughs> Thank you. So that's what Trump That's what Trump is hoping to do with his... his uh, hoping to it... stimulate Canadian domestic gherkin well, manufacturers? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, his iron industry. That, that's sort of the intent of tariffs and protectionism, is to protect your own industries at the cost of others, um, but also at the cost of your own consumers, because perhaps your industry is yes. not as efficient, well, so yeah. producing things as cheaply. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would say it's not necessarily going to affect, you know, the, the sort of like customer welfare or consumer welfare, you know, on, on balance. But yes, like for each individual item, but on balance, yes, typically it means things get more expensive. So if you can get your gherkins for 5% more expensive than you were getting them from Europe. Yes, it's still 5% cheaper than what you're getting from the States, so it's better for you. The customer still pays 5% more. But, so the American producer now has no purchase orders. Yeah. The Canadian producer is paying slightly more. You know, it's a lose-lose. This is why they call it a lose-lose, because the person who's winning is the person in Europe who's selling subpar gherkins for too much. Actually, like... They do make very good gherkins. There. Like I'm sure you've had the Mai gherkins, you no, know, from I'm, France. I'm, They're quite good. I'm not much of a uh, gherkin connoisseur. Well, that's that's too bad. Um. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, the list itself is also interesting. Um, Mary Danielle Smith, um, in the National Post, did a small write up of this. The items appear to be random. Uh, be it spent fowl. What spent fowl? Spent fowl. Oh, is that um? Chickens that have had like stuff removed or something. It's had stuff removed. I don't know. I forget. It's chickens, but I forget like In what the. No, spent fowl is a type of chicken that uh, has laid eggs all its life. Oh, so it's like, right. Yeah. It's like a used up chicken. Right. It's, That's it's pretty rough, spent, man. It's spent. It is like a lower grade of meat. Um, so spent fowl is on the list. Orange juice is on the list. Gherkins, whiskey, maple syrup, maple syrup, sleeping bags, inflatable rafts. And so, damn! If your camping trip just went down the fucking tubes, my yeah. man. There's, a, there's actually a lot of camping things, um, but ostensibly, what global so do your Fairs camping shopping did before Canada Day is they looked at where these products are coming from, right? Where the large producers in the United States are. So the easiest one to do this with is, of course, Florida and oranges, right? 
So orange juice is on the list, and so we don't Mar- have a lot of domestic orange groves. Little little Marco is going to be waking up this week saying, "With this tiny little carton of orange juice." The the orange juice producers are going to have their pitchforks at his door, and the idea of this is to place pressure on Republicans in yeah. advance of the midterms. I see. So basically, all well, placing of... pressure on Marco Rubio is very easy to do. So good target. <laughs> so effectively, all of the. Um, all of the sanctioned items or all the ones that apply tariffs and countermeasures can more or less loosely be tracked back to So when you said they, they were political random. battlegrounds. So when you said that they were random earlier, that was just like not the case. No, I said they appear random. Ah, uh, they appear random. I see. They, they appear random. I see. Um like so when you look at sleeping bags, so this is in the Mary Danielle Smith piece. This this is where some of it gets a little hazy pretty fast, is like the number one exporter is, like, I can't remember the state. It was, like, Nevada or something. And it's, like, the sleeping bag company employs 24 people. Woo! Get them. And em. it's, like, <laughs> I'm not sure those 24 people are going to be exerting that much political pressure, but I, I guess it's something. I, I think you're, yeah. Um, I think this, this is your, it's not a precision tool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So when, when I said the trade war is not open quite yet, uh, we have mentioned July 1st is the date that the sanctions are set to take effect. Um, there's a 15-day consultation period, and then 15 days for then coming into force, basically, to, to take that consideration. We keep saying sa- sanctions. I think countermeasures is probably the more yeah, accurate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, the finance has sort of been open, that you know, or not even finance, Bill Morneau, I think, recently took this position, saying that the intent of the 30 days, instead of doing it immediately was to sort of ramp up pressure before we get to applying the actual countermeasures. That before. seems to make sense to me. So give, give them 30 days to sort of change their tune, and if not, there we go. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the other thing I think that's interesting is it's a little more technical, and it's honestly a little outside of my depth, but it's worth mentioning, is where we stand in terms of the broader trade structures when we do this. So the two here are... NAFTA Chapter 20, um, where we filed against the United States and the WTO. Mm. Um, we're generally offside with the, WT- the WTO. Um, generally, they frown upon this sort of retaliatory action. Yeah, They like you to, okay, X has applied tariffs on us. Let's go to the WTO and litigate the process. Yeah. And go through sort of that. That doesn't rather really happen than, at the speed of politics, though. Rather than imposing counters, uh, countermeasures. Yes. So the problem with the WTO is because the United States claimed the Section 232 exemption, evidently the WTO has historically been very tepid about making determinations on what is and is not justifiable on, nation- on a country's domestic national security grounds. Um, and Which is fair, right? Because they're never going to be privy to all the information, nor are they going to be able to force governments to you know share the information with them. So reasonable to sort of exercise benefit of the doubt there but, but from a legal perspective. But obviously this is not satisfactory to politicians operating at the speed of politics, right? Like yes. It's just, and, you and, can't do that. And the U.S. 232 sanctions, uh, the next one is automobiles, that that's sort of up in the air, are you know, blatantly not related to national security. I, I think the United States domestic industry already produces more than enough of all the grades of steel and aluminum that they need. For national security-related purposes, I think it's like 10% of the current domestic industry. Yeah. So it's it's just a farce. Um, but the WTO is certainly going to be yes. uh, put in a hard place. Yeah, I, I can see why as a policy of restraint they are 
they take that sort of agnostic point of view. Uh, but yeah, it is unfortunate and certainly can lead to abuse, like many WTO procedures. Um, so what does this mean? I, I think as this ramps up, unless we find some sort of resolution quickly, I think it might go on for a while. There's, there's some interesting dates. Um, the Mexican election is July 1st. Yeah, that's really soon. Um, if this is linked to NAFTA, NAFTA negotiations are basically out the window for now. Um, this was sort of the final nail in the coffin of a agreement in principle prior to midterms and Mexican election. Yeah. Um, everyone is pissed at everyone. It's not going well, you could say. Uh, yeah. yeah. In Mexican election, I think it will be very interesting to see what happens there. Um, I think the polls are, are pretty stable in showing that, uh, oh boy, uh, Emmanuel, is it, no, Andres uh, Lopez, Manuel Lopez Obrador. Lopez Obrador. Yeah. Is What's it Andres it? Manuel or Manuel Andres? I think it's Andres Manuel. I don't think Lopez it's Obrador. Obrador. It is. There's some sort of Nola or something that shortens. He has four initials, basically, and yeah. they, it's like Nola or something. Okay. Anyway. Um, yeah, so he's, he's a sort of left of center, you know, social democrat, populist sort of figure. Um, certainly more to the left than any probable... Mexican election winner in since Lazaro Cardenas probably, um, yeah, and that that was like a hundred years ago. So, so yeah, it, it certainly makes things interesting. Uh, Mexican politics not my thing. I do believe that they've been making moves to include him and his party as observers in the NAFTA process increasingly, yeah, which is reasonable to create buy-in for it. One of the intentions of getting the agreement in principle prior to the Mexican election was to create the framework to sort of sew in the future government so mm-hmm. that they had, you know, a starting place that they had to work within. Yeah. Um, I think something similar was done with TPP and the liberals well, and the NDP actually, I think in some of the, some parts of it. Seemingly none of that is going to happen. Um, it's also worth noting that um, in Trudeau's press conference with Freeland, Trudeau actually spoke pretty candidly about his conversation with Pence Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is has become sort of a point of contention between the two, where what Trudeau said was effectively, um, I was on the phone with Pence and we were pretty damn close to a NAFTA agreement, um, and I was going to fly down there and we were maybe going to sign a deal, but Pence said, um, if you come down here, you have to agree to the five-year oh, sunset, uh, sunset yeah. clause, and Trudeau said no, and so Pence basically said, you're not welcome. Um, the vice president has now sort of gone on to contradict Trudeau's account of things. Oh boy. Leading to a, he said, he said, um, which is sort of fun when you have, you know, the vice president and the prime minister disagreeing with each other on the content of their conversation is... Isn't that what readouts are for? Uh, so yes, there was a readout from the White House. It basically just said, it it was very terse. (laughs) It was discussed. (laughs) NAFTA was discussed. Like, honest to God, it's like two sentences, maybe three. There's probably at least two typos. Um, yeah. They have a lot of typos in their, like, basic... Anyway, sorry, it's very annoying. Relating to the common man. Yes. Um, okay, I think that that probably closes that chapter. So... We'll see where that goes. Yeah, again... Hold on to your gherkins, folks. That's another wait, wait and see. Yeah. Uh, Ontario election. Still ongoing. Etienne's still desperately hoping to not vote before he can leave the country. <laughs> Incredibly. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to having a year of people scolding me for... For not voting? If, if I don't vote. I haven't I haven't decided. Yeah. 
I haven't decided yet. I honestly don't know much about the candidates in my writing. I haven't done my my due diligence here. Yeah. Uh, to see whether or not one of them is worth supporting. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm also, I've got a lot of things to do before I leave. You are getting married. So There is a lot of stuff on your plate. I think like that's... playing Fortnite like six hours a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think that would be a pretty reasonable excuse if I, if I don't get married. It or, is a sorry, reasonable excuse. If, if I don't vote, stay tuned. Yeah, no, I always... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully that, that stays on the agenda. Um. So, I, I mean, the, obviously the big news, John... <laughs> I hate talking about yeah, well, the election, so let's let's cover it very briefly. I'll just like I'll, we're in a, we're in a deadlock. Basically, is kind of where we're at. It looks likely that Doug Ford's PCs will win. It seems like there's a pretty good chance that that won't happen, and the NDP will either cobble together some kind of confidence of supply with the Liberals or win an outright majority, which looks like kind of longer odds sort of they're ahead in the popular vote according to most polls but not by enough to overcome their sort of seat of inefficiencies in different regions one one interesting stat i saw on that i think they were at like 37.6 percent or something like that yeah um that the percentage that the ndp is hovering around right now is actually the same amount that got bob ray his uh majority yeah but it's just there's no third party basically compared to well, yeah, it's yeah. just the efficiency is so much different. Yeah. Well, also, I think David Peterson's liberals ran stronger than Kathleen Wynne's liberals are running now. For sure. Which makes a lot, a big difference, especially in the 905. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, Where there are a lot more red-blue switchers. Um, so uh, we, we don't know what will happen, unfortunately. We didn't get the script yet. Uh, or they're, they're behind. Um, but uh, that will be very interesting. I mean, I don't really know what there is to say. Oh, Kathleen Wynne sort of tossed in the towel today, uh, Saturday. July June 2nd saying that you know she was not going to be premier come next Thursday and that the Ontarians should support their local candidate to keep uh whichever whoever wins honest she was then asked who do you think would be better for Ontario uh Andrew Horvath or Doug Ford and then you know did sort of the classic non-answer and it didn't really Strong on t- or liberal opposition. Yeah. Uh, what I think has been hilarious to watch about this election is one, the complaints about strategic voting are sort of on the other foot now. Which is honestly, um, t- take it for me, incredibly satisfying. Um, <laughs> but also, it's it's just ironic to it, it makes both parties hypocrites, basically. Oh, everything. Um, We're to, all hypocrites every day, all the time. To say, like, oh, no, don't vote strategically, continue to vote liberal, and then the NDP are like, no, no, no vote strategically. Yeah. I think this the is, NDP. This is the only are, time you should vote strategically. Are, are we running on, on PR? Do we know that? No, I don't, I don't recollect. I don't really know either. But theoretically, that's our policy. So that would be, you know, something. Uh, as a consolation prize, I guess, if you were a keep the PCs out voter. It has just been hilarious to watch. So let's talk about win. Sorry, let's go back to win for a minute. Here. Sure. Um, is it a brilliant move to try and um, shore up the remaining liberal seats? Or is it... So, so the reason it would do that is that people... Yeah. Uh, I, I think the calculus is that the, there's a lot of personal animosity towards her. Yeah, and if she takes herself out of the equation... Then, then people yeah. will feel more comfortable voting liberal, not knowing who the leader will be. Yeah. Um, the flip side of that is, are people then well, just going are, to turn yeah. to the NDP and say, okay, liberals aren't really running. Yeah, because she's literally saying, like, vote against whoever wins, right? She's not saying... You're not voting for anything, right? 
And yeah. candidly, the liberals have always been a party of, you know, scratching each other's backs. And if there's no power to be had, I don't think there's a lot of interest in, you know, sort of community leaders in different areas of the province and in supporting a party that has completely thrown in the towel in the way wins liberals have. So I don't know. That might shake things up badly for them. It might backfire. But I mean, it's really like this is this is the thing with punditry is that it's fundamentally a sucker's game. So it's it's, it's <laughs> worth going in going behind the curtain for a minute to mention David Hurley. Uh, David Hurley, Gandalf, uh, Ga- Gandalf of of the Gandalf Group, is the uh, campaign manager for the Liberals. That's gone swimmingly. Um, he is basically a pollster, um, so you can bet whatever decision they've made here has been calculated um, based on some sort of polling information. We'll, we'll see ultimately how it turns out whether or not the Liberals, you know, walk away with one seat and no party status or not. Um, but. Hurley has been sort of praised by the Ontario Liberals and has been basically their secret sauce for yeah. years, um, and sort of the the wizard behind everyone. I'll, I'll be honest. Sort of, I tend to find political gurus in general are very overrated. I think if you look at the Ontario Liberals, like yes, they've been successful in several elections. They've also run against the biggest dunces <laughs> that Ontario has, uh, and that continues to be the case. In fact, they may have found the biggest dunce, um, and they've sort of won despite themselves, right? Like I, I and you know, I'm sure they've run good campaigns. I, I I do think that that's true, especially last time. But like, you don't get these utter lummoxes and like not attribute it to that to a large extent like i think governments really do defeat themselves and turn to the most likely alternative i think what the pcs have been stellar at for the last several elections is showing voters that there is not an alternative to the current government and the ndp has not been great at showing that either for the last several cycles though this time it's very different and that's why people keep coming back i don't think they're like you know i'm sure he's good at what he does but i really find gurus overrated and i think like people's individual intelligence like makes a lot less of a difference than they'd like to think it does but i'm a marxist so i believe in structure (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i mean i am not a big guru person myself i I generally um i i don't know hurley well if at all i've listened to a couple episodes of his podcast um but that's about it um it's it's more of a pop culture than anything um, but he, he does actually have one uh, episode I would advise listening to, to anyone interested. Um, it's a conversation between himself and... David Axelrod? Was he on the show? No, no. He, he, David Axelrod was. But that's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of the conservative campaigner who ran Kelly Leach's campaign. Remind me of his name. Oh, uh, Kavalis. Kavalis. Nick Kavalis. So, yeah, he has a sit-down with Nick Kavalis where, I mean, he, he's pretty generous in... Uh, sort of making it seem as if him and Nick Cavallis are basically the same guy. So it, it is... Well, liberal, you know, he, he, liberal he does, Tory. Well, yeah. <laughs> he sort of makes that position. He's like, Cavallis, why do you think you got you know shit on a lot worse than everyone else? So it is sort of interesting to see how he sort of puts himself in Cavallis' shoes. Yeah. Much more than I think most people would be comfortable doing. Yes, because um, he really did get a lot of heat for running like a dog whistle racist campaign that was like hateful and blah, 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 which yeah. it kind of was, so fair enough. But like... So to, that that is the episode I recommend to sort of get in the mind of David Hurley um, to see sort of how he frames himself against Nick Cavallis. I, I think it's worth listening to. So did 
Was there a broader point with uh, him running the the game for the Liberals rather than or other than like he's good? Um, Which is like he he may very well be. Just to clarify, like I'm no, sure he's good at his job. But no, like, my more substantive point was just to point out the pollster aspect that it should theoretically be data driven and a, a data driven strategic choice and not just some sort of. Oh, it always is, right? Um, but you in have theory, in and theory, then, <laughs> and then you have pollsters like Coletto came out today saying that that's this, not you know his interpretation yeah. of the polls. Yeah, but I mean, I so. think you go in with the numbers you have rather than the numbers that are a reaction to your decision. So you're always, you know, like yep. you're making judgments, right? Like all the time about how this is actually going to work out in the alchemical sense. And it's like, sometimes you don't get it right. And that's something that can happen to the best people. And, you know, with the best data, uh, smart people get things wrong all the time. Yes. And I mean, fundamentally, while polls are, you know, scientific, they are not science. Yeah, in poll- that you, you cannot divine and create new chemistry and elements using yeah. polls. A, a poll is like the... It's a rock that you touch to see if it's warm rather than a meat thermometer. Like, it's it's not exactly, like... Yeah. Anyway, they're, like, yeah, there is a lot of science. I'm not denigrating poll- the polling industry. They do good work with the, you know, increasingly limited data that they have. But it's it's a barometer, really, more than anything else. Yeah. And and making decisions based on polling very much is a social science. Yeah. It's, like, really just, like, honestly, like, I, I know it's, like, yeah, like, vote for, for the NDP because we're best placed. Like, vote for whoever you like, really. Like, if you think... This is Laura's general this election is my person, pitch. Just, vote for the person that your conscience tells you. I think that's... Frankly, you can't go too wrong with that. Um, I think in this case, we also have we have a great chance to elect, I think, well, I think will be a good government uh, that seems to me to actually be the best prepared, which, you know, I don't usually get to be in the position of saying. That's a very um, generous thing for you to say about Doug Ford. <laughs> No, uh, no. I think the Ontario NDP actually is like I. I have not seen this party this well prepared um, ever, and I think they are the like really ready to go. So I'm actually pretty jazzed about this, and I hope we pull it off. Uh, we will see what happens, but uh, I think I'll be at twenty five thousand feet. Yeah, and uh, asleep, Just studiously avoiding any asleep, any, asleep on any some melatonin, <laughs> melatonin strips. <laughs> okay. Uh, we also had uh, the Auditor General report this week. Sadly for him, because it turned out to just be a hell of a week. Yeah, this, um, so this is more your turf. Tell me. Yes. So the Auditor General dropped, I think, like... Ooh, it was a lot of reports. Uh, it's usually like four or five chapters. It was like seven or eight this what? time. Yeah, it was okay. a lot. Plus a bunch of supplementary stuff about several crown corporations. And what is rare, a message. Um, <laughs> no, it, it was like basically the... the Chapter and, zero. And he sent two ravens. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Michael Ferguson, the AG, dropped his reports this week. Um, and the fir- the big headline news is about the Phoenix pay system. And basically his, his takeaway was that it was, quote unquote, an incomprehensible failure um, on the part of the sort of executives and ministers and deputy ministers in the various departments and agencies uh, involved in the procurement and implementation of the Phoenix Pay system um, in doing so. Like, he was just like, this was just a complete fuck-up at every level, which is... The AG tends to be fairly, you know, blunt in in their assessment of of whatever they're they're looking at, but this was, like, a level of scathing that I have never seen in an AG report. It was really something. Yeah, it was an own goal. Yeah. Um... I just wanted. We are going a little long here. Then, yeah. Then we usually do. Uh, that's fine. It was a big week, so I just want to say, with regard to that report, that we won't talk about all of them. Don't worry. 
uh, I just want to say with regard to that report that I think that's it, this is really like the incentive structure in public sector decision making having its real flaws come out in force in the sense that it's a like public sector management unfortunately and I wish this were not the case tends to be driven by the incentive of ass covering more than anything else because when you you your managers are or you, the people you're ultimately accountable to are, are political ministers whose incentive is to not have stories about the department's fuck-ups be political problems for them. So there tends to be a lot of buck passing. And the fact that, you know, like access to information is a fantastic tool for the public to know what's going on in their government. And I think it's incredibly valuable. Unfortunately, it also has the tendency of making government decision-making slower, more opaque, more reactive. People get more risk-averse. It's basically like the, the risk aversion and accountability shuffling off as much as can possibly be done um, is unfortunately endemic to how the incentive structure and decision making works in the public sector at high levels. I think, you know, day to day line uh, public servants who are doing the work of analysis, briefing, program delivery, whatever, they don't really face this as much. It's not as much of a factor, but at the senior levels, this can really be a problem. And Donald Savoie has written about this many, many times. And once again, I highly recommend reading all of his work. Uh, governing from the center is a little dated now, but I think still has some very good insights. Um, what is government good at? A Canadian answer is a much more recent piece of his or a book of his that is quite good as well and highly recommend it. Um, so for me, this was not super, super surprising. Um, it, this is like, unfortunately, yeah, this is the product of structural forces in our, in our public service uh, at the sort of senior levels coming home to roost. And uh, that's kind of the way she goes. I hope they're able to resolve these things because at a personal level, it is like really devastating for a lot of public servants um, who work hard to, you know, work for the public every day. So Ferguson went sort of one further than normal. It's not just critiquing the, um, it wasn't just the audit. He sort of followed it up with also criticism of the public services response to his audits in past. Well, yeah. And this is what he said at the public accounts committee as well was that, um, he, you know, every time all the departments that he audits agree with his conclusions and then he comes back and re-audits the program or audits, you know, a sort of adjacent program or whatever a couple of years down the road and the same problems exist and nothing's been done. And I think that's like probably the case. I think it's you really do need people to to manage change. And unfortunately, change management is not something that the public sector cultivates because it's about covering ass. Uh, and that's, that's unfortunate. I really wish it were not the case. And I, I think a activist government uh whether ndp or otherwise is going to have to think very long and hard about how to get the federal public service um you know more able to take on big tasks in ways that don't turn out like the phoenix pay system i think that's really 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 a critical issue um i think that like that was the the big headline report there are also some reports on the champlain bridge which found that you know the the p3 structure they were considering would have been less efficient than just building it publicly the sort of traditional procurement structure yes it can i know it depends on the structure of the b3 project um there were some reports about indigenous education which found that the department was really over reporting graduation rates uh by only counting people in their last year of high school so if you dropped out in grade 9 10 or 11 it wasn't counting you in the dropout rates so this is funny because of the deliverology bent in particular. Well, yes, this is something that I thought of earlier this week that 
This is literally the department responsible for actual frontline service delivery that is life or death to people. <laughs> you know, like basic stuff like, you know, water, education, healthcare. And th- not only were the graduation rates vastly overreported, they had no real tracking of whether the things they were doing were effective or not. And this, they found the same thing for the uh, Aboriginal employment uh, strategy, which I think they may have changed the name since. Um, but that's like, they, they, he found once again, it's like, we're doing this, but governments are judging this by how much money we're spending rather than the results we're actually achieving. And like, this is precisely the kind of problem that the deliverology premise is supposed to, to combat. Uh, but it seems like that has not happened yet in this department, which is unfortunate because once again, this is the department most responsible for actual ground level service delivery to human beings. So let's let's back up because we haven't we we've always meant to, but we haven't actually covered <laughs> uh, deliverology. In no, we that. will another time. No, I, I I promise we will at another point. But let let's just talk very very superficially. Deliverology is the sort of public service management process that's been imported from the United Kingdom and trans and the federal government has been really big on trying to push it into their ranks. Yeah. And so they've set up results and delivery offices all across government, um, trying to push deliverology down literally everyone's throats. Yes. Um, the it makes whole, the whole concept of deliverology is finding sort of indicators in people's real lives yeah. and improving those indicators. Yeah. Uh, really good example is like sixth grade literacy, yeah, or mathematics scores. So and you can see how these work. Hospital wait times is a big one in sure. uh, in the UK, and like just to to like basically what he, Barber says in his book, which is uh, how to run a government so that citizens and whatever. It's a stupid name. Anyway, <laughs> find Barber's book. It's reasonably it's an interesting read. Um, he says basically there are four steps to this, which is identify your goals or priorities then find out what actual on the ground indicators are good indicators of progress in that goal sure implement things and then tweak as needed it's actually like really when you put it like that it sounds pretty basic it kind of is um but there you go uh once again gurus do a great job of packaging themselves and their ideas in very marketable forms i think barbara's done a fantastic job of that not to say that he's a bad administrator once again i'm sure he's good but it is a little basic when you actually lay it out like that. But yeah, that's that's the core of it, really. And it, it's, it does seem like when you spell it out, it's like, yeah, that sounds like things government should be doing. I agree. I think it is. But here we are. So, so the irony here is that in a situation where you have... Let, yeah, let me, let me just lay out the joke, really. Um, when you have the federal government that does very little uh, frontline service delivery, which we've talked about in the past, one of the few departments that does do frontline service delivery is INAC or whichever branch of INAC. DISC now. now. DISC. Um, and they still have fundamental issues reporting basic statistics yes. that would theoretically underpin yes. um, the entire deliverology model in that department. Yeah, it would be very interesting to find out what the department's actually done towards that. I'm sure it's something, but it wasn't reflected in the report. This is also one of the other interesting things with deliverology, not to go too far down it, but... I was always under the premise that sort of, in order to measure deliverology and sort of see the public and show publicly yeah. your success with deliverology, yeah. it's about making the indicators that you're trying to improve public and, and talking about them yeah. publicly. Like Washington State has a very publicly viewable portal on a wide variety of promises that the, the governor made. Uh, and like you can go look, I forget exactly what the URL is, but we have like, you know, results, the results portal through open data. 
which is kind of a joke, the mandate tracker. So, but that's that's the difference, right? Yeah, that's what I'm like, saying. Is the mandate tracker is a real hollow shell of like what that's actually supposed to be. The government has applied like the most basic forms of tracking to their political promises, um, but not to the actual metrics that deliver all that are supposed to underpin del- deliverology. Yeah, they're saying, oh. We booked X meeting with the G7. We promised to legalize X. We promised to do Y. And that is what's being tracked publicly instead of here is how literacy has changed on reserve. Here is how health improvements have rolled out. The only example I can think of with that um, is clean water or boil water advisories is perhaps the only one, but that's just because like by virtue of that problem, it is a numbers-based one. Well, and it's it, what he always, Berber did in the UK was a traffic light system. Sure. And that's something where they literally do have red, yellow, green on their, their tracker for this. Yeah. Um, so Underway with challenges. Yes, exactly. Um, so, no, I mean, it's fascinating. I honestly do think, like, there will be a very interesting book to write about deliverology in the first Trudeau government in the future. Uh, maybe maybe someone listening to this show will write that book someday. So, actually, let, let me make a few more points on deliverability. Oh, you're mad just... now. <laughs> Good and steamed about government. So, when, when I was briefly inside government, it was actually... Uh, I mean this from the public service perspective. Um, it was somewhat interesting to see that, like, you know, it wasn't on the front of many people's minds. Um, and they sort of had, like, sit-downs where you could go get the lunch... You could go to the vol- uh, the uh, optional lunch seminar where the Deliverology unit people explained to you what Deliverology was. I didn't really see much evidence of it, you know, pervasive in the departmental culture mm-hmm. um, other than, you know, every department got a shop of three or four people, often young, often with little experience at PCO, yeah. who were bound to the departments to try and implement Deliverology. And then, of course, the hilarious thing to note is that Deliverology was put everywhere. It was put at Global Affairs on the foreign affairs side. It was put in national defense. Like, development is actually a a really easy fit for it. And they've done a lot of results in delivery-based tracking over the years. And so that was one area where Deliverology wasn't really as as useful or as necessary. Yeah. Um, But, like, what are the tangible benefits at D&D in terms of metrics that you're tracking with uh deliverology and the reality is there's none like outside of like troop morale and like things like that you you can't track the success of your foreign policy through a deliverology model yeah outside of the development context i I think it's important to know we've been i think we've been pretty i think both of the and i think agree that deliverology in theory is like i think it's a reasonable way to think about delivering you know public goods and public services I think there, and this was something Barbara talks about quite candidly, is that there, when you tie the success of things to a few discrete indicators, you create an enormous incentive to start gaming those indicators. Yes. Um, so that's something I think like like is really really worth watching out for in these kinds of things. Is like when you when you talk about progress on indicators, how much of that is actually real, and how much of that is people like juicing stats by doing, you know, weird things that are actually undercutting the performance in other areas. So look at the, these examples. And this is not this, a public sector problem. And, and, <laughs> we've, and we've talked about this before, is with CRA. CRA, you know, oh, with v- a, very, yes. 
fairly similar example with how long uh, people are on the line for calls. Yeah, they just cut you off after two minutes, and so no calls in <laughs> two minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're meeting our service standards. Yeah, like, th- that's exactly the kind of thing that, like, Deliverology creates an incentive to do. For if, sure. If it's not managed well. When everything becomes the stats, everyone finds a way to game their stats. Yeah. If, yes. if management's sort of not paying attention, especially if or they're encouraging it. Especially if management's bonuses are based on yes, performance performance metrics, yes. which they are in the public service. I, I think a lot of people would be interested yes. to note that executives do receive bonuses yes. based on performance. This is like in the private sector equivalent would basically be like running a company and you make the share price go up year over year by juicing by share buybacks and never actually investing in the company. And then it collapses, which is this is exactly what happened to Sears and uh, did not end well for anyone involved. So, except for the, the guy at the top, I guess, who is laughing from his yacht somewhere. Um, but yeah, that's bad management. Um, I think that'll probably do it for today. I know you have some cannabis stuff, but... Oh, man, there's so much that's happened on it. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, we, we can do a longer episode. We, we haven't done one in a while. We're not going to do it for the month, so go ahead. Um, okay, well, let's just recap on cannabis because a lot of things have happened. Um, when we last spoke... Uh, C45 had been divvied up, so C45 being the Cannabis Act, one of two pieces of legislation on cannabis, had been divvied up to five uh, Senate committees for study. Four of those committees then reported back to one of the committees, yes. Social Affairs, we Science, spoke Technology. spoke about a couple of those reports last time, I think. Yes, we did. Yes. And now Social Affairs uh, did clause by clause, what was it, last week? early this week Doesn't matter. I, I can't remember yeah um recently did their clause by clause review it was like eight hours i think um it was it was super long exhausting they accepted something like 40 m- amendments uh, most of those technical in nature um changes of language differences between translations things along those lines moving of commas um there was five to seven um substantive amendments um, mostly the ones proposed by ISG senators. Um, Dean got a lot of the amendments in. Tony Dean. Tony Dean uh, came back from hospital to sort of oversee it. He's the Senate sponsor of the bill. Um, conservatives had a lot of their amendments shot down somewhat un- un- uh, unexpected, or sorry, somewhat expectedly. Um, so we won't talk about the specific amendments, but... The bill goes back to report stage in the Senate, and then it moves on to third reading. At third reading, uh, conservative senators, uh, well, all senators, have agreed to a deal to, and, and this is unique in my um, in, in my experience recently. I, I don't think this has happened recently. Um, but the senators made a pact to structure the remaining debate on the bill up, up to the June 7th deadline thematically. So one day is the indigenous issues debate. One day is this debate. And then they also created a pretty binding system um, for how the debate would go, when amendments could be proposed, how long senators could present uh, and debate and things along those lines, all with the view of enforcing the June 7th deadline. Mm -hmm. Um, So that had all party uh, support and has gone forward and is now sort of in effect. And so the bill is set to be debated in the Senate every day going forward. One of the interesting things to note is that one of the amendments that passed at third reading, generally passing amendments at third reading is reasonably rare, happens more in the Senate than in the House, um, is a Senate amendment from Senator... uh, 
I'm not going to know off the top of Yes, head. yes, yes. We talked about this two minutes Denise ago. Batters. Batters. Uh, I th- no, it wasn't even Batters. It was oh, another, God damn it. An- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it was another another of the conservative senators whose name will lose me right now. Um, her uh, amendment on brand stretching. Um, so basically, in the bill right now, there are provisions having to do with advertising. Um, but she has taken the view that um, these aren't strong enough. This and, you very know, much sounds like batters. There will be cannabis-branded merchandise and things like that. So <gasps> What? Her amendment is a lot stronger. And at committee, the Health Canada officials basically said that cannabis companies won't be allowed to put their names on stores if the text of her amendment went through. Um, so... Her amendment was shot down at committee, yes, but has since passed in third reading debate. At the floor, huh? that's interesting. Uh, that's that's exceed. That never happens in the house. On on the floor, yeah. Um, so I mean, it's likely to be removed at uh, when when the message goes back to the house. Of course, the house and the government get sort of final say over these things as they wrangle back and forth. But the Senate is likely to respect it. But it's an example of um, somewhat unique procedurally. On C-46, I think sort of the opposite is happening, where C-46, senators and committee at LCJC, Legal and Constitutional Affairs, voted to include an amendment that really changes the nature of the impaired driving um, legislation. And what it was is that the, the legislation includes allowing police officers to have uh, basically random breath testing. Hmm. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of human rights groups and defense lawyers, Michael Spratt included, expressed their concern that this would basically become the new carding. Yeah, that police officers would—it's too much discretion. It would be used inappropriately. It would be used to target uh, people, and then the constitutionality of it is up for grabs. Sure. Um, Justice has put out a their constitutional opinion on it. There have been some scholars. When you have, say justice, you mean the Department of Justice? Yes. D- DOJ has, has put out their opinion on the constitutionality and have defended it. Um, but it goes back and forth. And so this is an instance where it was Batters, I believe. Uh, Batters put forward an amendment, and the senators actually voted in favor of the conservative amendment to remove this provision from the bill. Um, really interesting, because I think conservatives broadly are split. Um, there was a PMB. Uh, introduced by a conservative member of parliament, none other than Stephen Blaney, um, to do some of these things. Um, and the government had sort of not supported the legislation at that time, but it has now included it in C-46. All of that is to say, um, the discussion right now, it seems, is that the ISG is hoping to reverse that uh, committee amendment. And at third reading, they may remove that amendment from the bill. Interesting. So we'll see what happens. Uh, also interesting legislatively this week is uh, the passage at third reading in the House of Commons of Bill C-262, uh, which is Romy Saganesh's bill. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Yes, binding the government to recognize uh, and implement under the United, sure. United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, so that will be an interesting legislative one to watch as it goes into the Senate next year. Uh, probably next year, I guess. Um, well, well next I mean, technically, session. yeah, technically next session. Well, sitting, we have not even entered yeah, a second yeah, session sorry. of what, this parliament ne- yet. Next it, it, session, I, I fuck I, this up I, all the time. I stand by it. I fuck this up all the time. Anyway, we'll see what happens with that and uh, whether that actually passes by the time the house rises in June and will not rise again next year. I'm, I'm gonna bet it doesn't. 
We'll see. We will see. I hope it does. Anyway, that will do it for us this week. Uh, and in fact, it will do it for us for most of the month of June, really. In fact, all of the month of June. Uh, so we will see you back probably after Canada Day. You know, um, you can you can take uh, initiative and oh, find find someone to replace me. That actually might be fun. I don't know. At least you won't see Etienne for, for the rest <laughs> of the month. So, uh, and you might hear it from me. We'll see. You can find someone to replace me. I have some I have some names names in mind. Oh, it's gonna be. I don't even want to hear them. It's gonna be all socialism all the time. Well, yeah, <laughs> we're gonna do like ten episodes. Anyway, that'll do it. Uh, enjoy your your June and your Canada Day holiday. Uh, unless you hear from me first, in which case I'll say that again. But that is it. Bye. <laughs>